Hey, ragamuffins! This is episode one of the Redheaded Ragamuffin. Thank you so much for listening. I have a wonderful guest for you guys today, Mary DeMuth. She is amazing, amazing, amazing woman. She's an author, a speaker, a podcaster, and an artist. There's nothing this woman doesn't do. (laughs) She's so incredible. She loves Jesus with all of her heart. She has been married 29 years to her husband, Patrick, and they have three adult children. She's written 40 books. Her 40th book comes out in December. It's called Outrageous Grace Every Day. And the last book she wrote before that is called We Too, And it is how the church can respond to the sexual abuse crisis redemptively. And we're going to be talking about that book today. Here is Mary DeMuth. Well, thank you, Mary, for coming on this podcast for The Broken. It's very new. And I want to tell everyone that you are the author of 40 books coming in December, your 40th book. And... Your book before that, the 39th book, We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis is the one I would love to talk about today. And it was so difficult to, I don't know, it was, for me, it was just, it was not a quick read. It was so rich with resource. And I mean, everyone from, for sure, anyone in ministry, but even like normal, just everyday people, so everyone knows somebody that needs to be comforted and you just lay it out like a map and and it's not just like a how-to it's a it's a me too like you said in the book and coming from you it just means so much and J, um, jd greer did a wonderful job um in the forward and he had like m scott peck quote to listen to someone is to love them and it was so good and i'm sure this was a difficult book to write Yes, definitely hard. And um, because, of course, my own story is interwoven in the book, but also I knew that uh, there were so many people who are broken out there in the world who desperately needed to be seen and heard and noticed and uh, protected and defended against. And justice has not been served for many, many, many people. And in particular, it's especially grievous to me that in the church, we're not doing justice well in this particular realm. There's a few pockets of light out there, but the reason I wrote the book was I was thinking we have to do better. And so this was my kind of my love letter to the church to help us to understand that we must do better. Yes, definitely. When you say pockets of light, that's exactly right. And I think when they talk about it, though, they act like there's just a few bad ones. And really, I only see a few good examples. And um, so definitely change. Yes, exactly. And um, I think we can also, I mean, this is a big issue. And then we can also like get tired of the issue and push it aside. But we can't afford to do that. It, the stats with Lifeway, they did a study on uh, people leaving the church and they looked at 30 somethings and one in 10 of them left the church because of how it dealt with sexual abuse. And so if we want to you know, look at the future of the church, we absolutely have to address this issue. Yes, definitely. You, you say 
that an untold story never heals. And Brian Manning, someone I love very much, also said something very similar. He said, what is denied cannot be healed. And I think that's the same with the church and the cover-ups. Like, there's no healing for people. They're being re-victimized all of the time. And it's supposed to be a safe place. And it's not a safe place. And there's nowhere to run because we're in the world. And we run to the church and there's victimization. So this book is just filled with hope, filled with resource. I mean, you, you, you cover everything. You even, I was surprised, you even cover uh, what I call the texts of terror. And I have this um, biblical narrative literary book. It's a feminist readings of the texts of terror. And it's by a woman, you know, in a woman's perspective. And I was just blown away by how you cover that too everything and the story, the newer story that you hadn't told. And then something that I remember a guy named Malcolm, I think it was apologized to you on behalf of all men. And I just broke down and just bawled <laughs> when I heard, I don't know, I just bawled. And this book, I did a Stephen's ministry training in 1997. So I was only about 21 years old or something. And we had required reading materials that really helped us with empathy and how, what not to say to people like Romans 8, 28, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just throwing verses at them and, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And you have all of that in there too. And I also know that you were rescued by Jesus at 15 and I was also rescued at 15. It was a different year, but same age. And um, uh, if you would tell your story on here, I'd, I'd love it if you would. Right. So I um, I definitely grew up in a home I didn't want to duplicate later on. Uh, it was a home of complex trauma. And they define CPTSD as as um being caused by pervasive trauma that you can't escape from and it's constant. And as I look at that definition, I, I just, it's my childhood. I see it very clearly. Um, I was uh, raised by um, a mom and a dad, but the mom and dad got a divorce very quickly. So they, I never knew them as married. And then um, my uh, mom remarried. And uh, during that year, I was five years old. And that's when all the sexual abuse happened. So I was at a babysitter's house and these teenage boys would come and pick me up and they would, they would rape me in the woods in the Pacific Northwest. And of course they told me they'd kill my parents if I told anyone. And they said that, um, you know, that they used a bad word just to describe what they were doing. And so I was terrified to tell anyone, but eventually they started inviting their friends and I couldn't handle that anymore. And for whatever reason, in my little five-year-old mind, I thought, I'm going to die. And so I dared to tell someone. And the interesting thing is I did not tell my parents, not my father, who I learned later was a very excessive sexual predator, nor my mother, who was highly neglectful at the time. And um, certainly not my stepdad, who was angry and scary. Um, And so I told this babysitter, who probably already knew that this was going on. And so when I told her, she said, I'll tell your mom. And the next day, the boys knocked on that door again. And they uh, continued to just perpetrate and she allowed it. And so at that point, I started to think I'm going to die again. And so I and I also realized there wasn't a human being on this earth that was going to ever protect me. So 
I decided it would have to be me. If I was going to protect myself, it'd have to be me. So I learned how to sleep. I would get home from kindergarten and I would run into her bedroom and I would pull the covers over my head and I would sleep and that would save me. Um, Fast forward a few years, uh, we moved away from that situation, so I was no longer in it, but I felt like I had a come molest me sticker on my forehead, and predators kept finding me. I was grateful that I was able to escape and run away from all those different predators, um, so I didn't have to have that story again, but it was frightening. I was constantly hypervigilant and running away from people who were uh, very unsafe, plus I just lived in a very unsafe place. Um, my mom remarried and that man became like a father to me, my biological father who was doing all sorts of grooming of me and harming other women, um, ended up taking his life. And right after that, uh, my mom and stepdad who he had become my father, um, they were going to get a divorce and that was just devastating for me because I just felt like I didn't have a dad. And so thought about suicide, wrote suicide poetry, um, in the eighth grade, when I was 13, 14 years old, I had a counselor in my junior high who listened to me, and that made so much difference. I just went into his office and cried all the time. It was really uh, sweet of him to allow it. And then um, as a ninth grader, I was invited to Young Life, a ministry to high school students, and they just talked about Jesus all the time. And I, I remember uh, hearing the story about Jesus calming the waves and the sea and the disciples asking, who is this that the wind and the seas obey him? And so that question just circled around in my mind all summer long. And in the fall, I went to a weekend camp where I heard the whole gospel and uh, ironically gave my life to Jesus under an evergreen tree, which was the greatest form of my violation. A lot of the rape happened under evergreen trees in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but I just basically, my prayer was, I didn't understand the whole idea of I was a sinner. I thought certainly am well, you know, I know that now, but at the time I was more like, um, would you be a dad who will never leave me because I am fatherless and I need, I need that. And that's how I came to know Christ at 15. Wow. Oh, Mary, the evergreen tree, um, supposedly represents eternal life. I remember studying about that because there were some fundamentalists that would I remember telling me I couldn't have a tree. <laughs> and <laughs> that's just really something. Um, he is definitely father to the fatherless, isn't he? He is. And I'm pretty sure the tree I was under was a hemlock tree, which in itself is a sign of death because that's what people would use to kill themselves, you know, back in the olden days, hemlock. And so it's just kind of an ironic, beautiful thing that the Lord did to have me be in that exact place at that time to say that prayer. It's, it's pretty crazy. Wow. I would love to say that after I met Christ, then everything was perfect. And I think a lot of people wish that that were true. And a lot of people preach that that's true, not necessarily in those words, but we're kind of fed this belief that once we meet Christ, everything's going to be solved. We just have to have more faith. We just need to walk these certain steps. Um, that was not the case for me. I still was broken by the trauma of the past. And it took, it has taken the rest of my life, but it began. Um, in high school and college, when I began telling my story to anybody who would listen, um, that was the beginning of that healing journey. Wow. So when you started telling your story, <clears throat> were you surprised at, because I know that sometimes it's not the people you expect to say the things that you would expect them to say, and then someone else can say something, you would expect them to say something awful, and they say something healing, and it's just, it takes you back, and... I can't describe how it feels to be 
almost like re re traumatized by comments. Yeah, I I was really blessed and in the people that I told, and I think it was just God knew I was so very tender I couldn't have handled that. So I told my young life leaders and they were very sweet. And I told some um, older people in young life what had happened and they just wept alongside me. I told people in my church when I went to college and they did the same, lots of prayer, lots and lots of prayer, lots and lots of prayer. Um, and so I really, my beginning journey was not fraught with in with those kinds of you know, pushback. It's been only more lately that that's happened, which is odd. Um, but in the beginning, way back in the 80s, <laughs> people were more kind, I guess. I don't know where I just ran into kinder people in the church who um, who dealt with me very tenderly. But I, I don't want to say that and not acknowledge the fact that there's so many insensitive things that are said to sexual abuse victims. And I've had all of them said to me since then, you know, those things like, well, that was so long ago, you know, the old is gone, the new has come, God's going to make something beautiful out of the past. And, and, oh, you just must not trust him for healing. And I mean, there's so many insensitive things that we can say. And I've heard um, in that tender spot, I was blessed not to have to hear that. Wow. 80s, the 80s must have been great. <laughs> I mean, they were, <laughs> I, know, I was there. I was here for that. <laughs> the 90s, you were young then. <laughs> the 90s though, I, I was saved in 1990 and I was 15 and purity culture was just starting out. Right. So for me, coming from the trauma that I had endured, Jesus was such a light. I mean, it's just hope and everything good. And then I do remember, though, being in a purity culture, just youth group, you know, it was big then. And they had us pass around a piece of tape and... Oh, tape, dear. You know, it wasn't sticky when it got, you know, it was passed around too many times. And there's just so many awful illustrations. Like there's even one about a white balloon that, you know, if you kiss a boy, take a little bit of air out of your balloon. If you hold a boy's hand, take a little air out. Mm. Like you're losing your purity as if, as if that's possible like that. And that was damaging, I got to say. Oh, yeah. And that's, I think that's a message that um, I definitely heard when I was, you know, a younger Christian. I don't know, I maybe it was just God being gracious to me again, but in my mind, and this is maybe where, um, I don't know where it came from, it just must have been in the Lord. But in my mind, I thought that's so dumb. <laughs> so, uh, because I knew... Bizarre. Because I knew, you know, for me, I could have looked at that and said, oh, well, I'm not pure for my wedding bed because I was raped. And in my mind, I was like, but that's not the Jesus that I know. You know, this is not the one I know. Like, this is not my fault. And I still can make choices now that reflect my relationship with God. But I'm not disadvantaged. I am because I've been hurt, but I'm not disadvantaged impurity because someone violated me. That was ridiculous. And so part of that was just this kind of, the more we know Jesus and the nature of Jesus, the more we can kind of see the silliness of those pressuring arguments. Plus the fact that almost all of those arguments, you know, you pass around the rose, the tape, whatever, piece of paper, um, the balloon, it's about girls. And it puts all, yeah. all, all, all the responsibility on the poor girl and in a way, that's true because we tend to be the gatekeepers of our own bodies. But 
um, in the sense that we have the volition to be able to say no when someone's approaching us. But um, I, I think it's a really low view of men to constantly berate women for what they're wearing as if men are running around stumbling and falling over because of what we're wearing is silly to me. Um, yeah, they just can't help themselves like their nature, you know, they just have to, it's terrible. It is a really low view. Of it's insulting. And my husband, you know, he's a normal guy, but that's not something that makes him trip up. And, and that's something that if you have that issue, then you need to work on it yourself. It's not her fault. And I mean, I'm not going to run around in my bikini everywhere, um, especially not in the winter time, but uh, it's yeah. still not, it's still not an invitation to gawk and it's not an invitation to abuse. No. No, I've seen just the the Christ likeness just doesn't seem to be there. Like I, I think we've kind of forgotten. I don't know why, but even like I know struggling recently with the text of terror that I was talking about things that I I don't know how I didn't see it before, Mary. But one day I just saw it. I had I read from a Living Bible that was it, I don't know why they. I was reformed, so I never read from a living Bible. <laughs> you just didn't do that. And, yes. and so when ESV I to, only. <laughs> yes. And I started to read this, and these these characters came to life, and they weren't they were real people all of a sudden. And I don't know how I missed it. From twenty years of being a Christian, I missed it somehow. And I saw these horrible things, these the texts of terror, and I and I it looked as if God was wanting this to happen, and and then. I had this epiphany. I was talking to a friend and we were talking about David and Bathsheba and how, you know, she said something about how David was punished greatly. And, and I said, and then I said, well, yeah, I mean, his concubines and wives, when they were all raped on that uh, rooftop and, and she said, see, and I said, but, but think about this, that's God's punishment. I'm like, imagine Jesus walking around that rooftop watching that happen to those women. Do you think he would be okay with that? Do you think he wanted that? And she said, no. And I'm like, no. And I, I just, I can't put my head around it all, but I just always try to filter it all. Like, you know, I know back in the nineties, it was also, what would Jesus do? Remember the bracelets? Yeah. All of that. And I feel like we need that back again. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus think about this? A Christ-like mind. Or his through his character because he showed us who God was. He said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." And he also said, "If he leaves, he leaves us his Spirit, and we're better off if he'd leave." And we have his Spirit, and he can be with us all of the time, even though we just want to reach for the flesh. Like I can't wait to to see him in the flesh and just hope, you know be held physically by him. I know that he says it's better that he would he would leave his Spirit. It just doesn't feel that way some days. You know, you want a person. And that's why I think we are his hands and feet, though. We are the ones who hug people and we walk with the broken like you do, Mary. You, some ragamuffin in Ohio, <laughs> like you, you've been there for me on days where I was on that bridge, you know, in a sense, just mm -hmm. like feeling horribly. And you'll just pray with me and you will, you're there for people. You really do it. And I know it's not easy. It's, there's no way it can be easy. But thank you for doing that. And I think that this book is going to help other people to be able to do that because you really do need the tools because you need the, not just the tools. You can't even do it with just the tools, but you need the perspective. 
And that's what you give in this book, perspective. That the people, these people, most of them will never, thankfully, think. I'm glad that it's not going to happen to them. That they're never going to know what it feels like to see the face of evil in your face. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are never going to see that. But you're able to, the way you write, the way you speak, you're able to bring that and people can, and there's something you wrote in your book that toward the end, I want to read it. it says, I share this not to gain empathy, but to remind us that the trauma of sexual abuse is long and insidious. It wreaks havoc on the soul. It shapes how we perceive the world, our experience of God, the way we yell at ourselves in our heads. Trauma is the lifelong companion we never asked for, and it lingers far longer than we ever anticipated. Because of the enduring legacy of that trauma, I wrote this book. I am, I am a wounded healer who longs to see the church rise up into itself and do the necessary work of burden bearing. And that's, that's just what our job is, Mary, to bear burdens. And I, I don't feel like that's happening. <laughs> well, the scripture says, fulfill, you know, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And so if we want to fulfill the law of Christ, we have to be burden bearers. And to be a burden bearer, is to do what you talked about earlier is to grant the gift of listening and not just listening so that you can say stuff, listening to listen and um, to gently hold someone's story because, you know, as you said, um, I often tell audiences an untold story never heals. But what happens is when someone tender and broken begins to tell their story and they spill it out to someone who's proud and self-righteous, it can be more damaging. Like you said, there can be a secondary trauma involved. And so my heart in writing the book is to provide some tools and some intel about, you know, some people just don't know. They don't know they're being annoying and they don't know they're being mean or mean spirited. They just think they're, they're, they don't know what to do. So they're trying to fill the air with words. And so I'm hoping that this gives them some intel mm -hmm. onto how a how a trauma survivor filters their words. Um, I know some people, if they found out that what they said was damaging, they would be horrified. So I'm trying to, you know, I'm assuming positive intent mm -hmm. of most folks. Now, when we're talking about um, church leaders who cover up abuse, that's a whole different thing. I think that's just evil. And it's all about uh, protecting reputation over protecting the, the survivor. So that's a whole different can of worms. But um, in terms of most people wanting to do the right thing, um, they just need a little bit more of a, a gentle push toward what is it like to walk in the skin of a sexual abuse survivor. And hopefully I've provided that in We Too. Yes, you definitely have. People just have to read it because <laughs> they will get what they need in this book. I have been surprised by, because I know, like you said, you have to tell a safe person. Sometimes it's hard to, to just to tell who is safe, but I know maybe we have higher expectations on people that are kind. And I don't know why it's been a real shock to me at some of the things that have been said, like, like you must not be healed. That still bothers you. And you're like, really? <laughs> you don't know what I would be like without Christ. I mean, mm -hmm. that would be different. Yes, you could say that then. I'd be dead. I already know where I'd be. And so there's no way they could, because I know you've talked about that too. Like you've struggled with suicidal thoughts when you were a teenager. And um, I, I did as well. And it's just like, I don't know how people can say those. It's just, I know it's never going to probably end. They're always going to say crappy things. People are going to mm. say that we have to listen to the voice of what 
the voice of truth, what the Lord says. Just like you with purity culture, how it didn't, it just went over your head. You're like, this is stupid. This is not what Jesus tells me. The Holy Spirit was inside you telling you those truths. That's what happened. It, you weren't even affected because he showed himself to you so strongly that nothing they could say would was able to penetrate, you know? Well, and I think, I think, yes, I think we do need to trust the spirit within. Some of us, though, are so broken inside, it's hard to discern between the lies and the truth. And the lies sound like truth and the truth sounds like lies. And so that's part of retraining our minds um, into believing the truth about ourselves that we're sung over by the by the Lord of the universe that we are wildly loved and and also wrestling through with some of those questions that we have and not leaving them unattended. So of course the question comes up for me as a mom. Um, I have three children there in their 20s now, but had I known that something was going on with someone, and I'm not saying that it hasn't because I don't know, but um, but had I known, I would have taken out that person. I would have inter- <laughs> I would have intervened. And so then the question becomes, if I, a, an imperfect but loving mother, would intervene for my child who's being assaulted, then why didn't God, you know, do that for me? That's a that's the question of the p- problem of evil, and I've wrestled with it my entire life, and I still don't have a complete answer. I understand more the longer I delve into the Word of God and look at you know the narrative of Scripture. But I'm not going to have, I've kind of come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to have that question satisfactorily answered by some neat theological construct, but that on the other side, when evil's finally vanquished and Satan's thrown into that terrible pit, which he deserves, um, then I'll understand it, but I'm not going to have a full understanding now. The other thing I think we need to talk about besides that is the fact that there's a suicidal epidemic going on. And I have a funny feeling that all a lot, a high percentage of people who consider suicidal ideation have been victims of sexual assault. And we just don't seem to make that connection. And I don't know why. I wish I had a study that could show me that, but I think there's a pretty high percentage. I wouldn't doubt it. Not at all. I have a a scholar that I'm going to be talking to next after you. um, His name is Thomas J. Ord. And he wrote a book called God Can't. And it's it's been very healing and interesting to me. He has this, he says that, you know, God, you know, Jesus is a spirit. He went back up and said, he leave your spirit. He doesn't have a physical body here. So he talks about like in the midst of that trauma, like your trauma that you had at five, if Jesus was physically there, then it wouldn't have happened. He would have rescued you. And he talks about how we are his hands and feet. And I don't know. It just, it was such a different concept for me being from a reformed background that everything down to the shoes on your the socks on your feet are God ordained, you know, everything, <laughs> every single breath you take, you know, there's not one maverick molecule in that, <laughs> in that. So it is a different concept, but it has been healing. Like you said, it's a mystery. So I'm entertaining these thoughts and they have been very healing to me. And I know a lot of people aren't happy with that, but I told him, you know, with my background and everything, maybe I just have to believe it this way. Maybe I just have to believe that God is good, that there's no evil in him. Just for my own healing and, I don't know, state of mind or mental health, <laughs> I just have to believe. And I know that's picking a God that is not all powerful 
if, if you're looking at like there's something that he's not in control of. I know that's really scary. I always said, if the Lord wasn't in control, I would have a nervous breakdown today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, I think I'm there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'm there right now. But it is, like you said, that you're just going to be okay with not knowing. And someday you will get to know. But right now, you just don't get to know all the answers. And we have to trust in his goodness and who he is. And that's where I just go back to rereading the Gospels over and over and over again, because it just helps me understand um, the heart of Jesus and his compassion for the one standing on the outside. And I love the fact that he reserved his harshest words and his greatest pieces of criticism for those who had it all figured out. I mean, they had God in Mm -hmm. a very elaborate facade of a box and they, you know, put other people in these little tiny boxes of what you can and can't do, what you should and shouldn't do. And they had so defined God that they actually missed him when he was standing in front of them, which is just so crazy (laughs) to me. Like they spent their lives, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious elite, they spent their lives studying God and he stood in front of them and they they crucified him. <laughs> so it's just a fascinating study to think about how when we become spiritually prideful, which we don't talk about much in church lately, um, we don't talk about pride. It's actually the sin underneath all the sins. And you see it in the um, the temptation of Adam and Eve, and you see the pride in um, the, just the narrative of Satan throughout scripture. It's there. And so whenever you see it in operation, it's not Jesus-y. It's not Christ-like. And yet those people who defend the faith, or they say they're defending the faith, are actually not acting in loving kindness toward others. And so we learn that to obey him is better than sacrifice. And we learn that God is after our hearts and our worship more than our empty rules that we, you know, connect to him. Um, That doesn't mean I don't believe in the 10 commandments or anything like that, but I'm just saying it's odd to me when you look at folks like John MacArthur making really mean statements about another believer. uh, It just breaks my heart because it, I see that, in our rightness, or at least in his rightness, he was sinning. You can be 100, you can have the perfect theology, and I don't think that exists on this earth, but let's pretend it does. I can have the perfect theology, and if I don't love, I have nothing. I'm a clanging gong, and I'm just a, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yep. Mm-hmm. And so we have to balance that those two things. Orthodoxy is important, but we have to also uh, balance that with orthopraxy, which is right practice. Yeah. So there's a balance to the two. And, um, and I think the church today needs to repent of its spiritual pride um, of thinking it always has it because we're humans. How can I possibly have 100% accurate theology? The only one that does is Jesus. There's no one on earth that has the right exact jot and tittle of the law completely figured out. Because he is the word, (laughs) you know, otherwise, you know, yeah, he's the only one. And you're right. We miss him now, even as Pharisees today, we miss him right in front of us. And the, the Pharisees, they were into, they knew the old, they knew the law. And he's like, you know, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. And they weren't used to that. That's why they missed him. They were not. He he turned it all upside down. It's an upside down kingdom. And that was the start. And even now, though, after all these years, we have the we have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. We have all of this and we still miss it. We still miss him. 
right in front of our faces. And it's just, it's sad. <laughs> it is sad. But. I would say that we need to err on the side of compassion mm -hmm. when we're dealing with people who are broken. Um, they're not looking for a sermon and they certainly are not interested in our rightness. They're interested in being heard and loved and prayed for and um, being taken, you know, taken seriously. So that's, I think, a greater love than trying to perform some sort of sermon for them to, you know, kind of put them in their place or tell them their theology is wrong or whatever. That's not loving. Yeah. Um, and again, we have to be, we, uh, that's why we have mirrors in our homes. We have to look in those mirrors and say, um, what am, who am I, who am I in Christ? Um, what are my flaws? How can I repent of what I've done wrong? And to first look at our own hearts and take the log out of our own eyes be between before we start taking the little tiny speck out of our friend's eyes. Yes. And it's such a balance too. Like, I mean, in the reformed church, I remember just being so much into the word and not the spirit, you know, just mm -hmm. it was like father, son, and holy Bible. That's what it yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> And the spirit, I mean, I did theophostic counseling too, and I had so much healing in that. There was so much healing. I can't believe I would forget that, but somehow I just did. I wanted to be in control of it. I wanted to have God all figured out in a box. I didn't want any surprises. Mm -hmm. you know, I needed to know. It was just like this fear of the unknown. And I thought, it, you know, systematic theology puts it right in a nice little neat box. And the process theology is different. It's more experiential. And I think it has to be a little of both. And we met, you know. It's hard to balance. It's really hard to balance all of that out. And like with John MacArthur, I pictured Jesus sitting there too beside him. And I thought, would he have not said that? He would not have said that <laughs> if mm -hmm. Jesus Christ was right next to him. And he was. He was. And, but he, he forgot. Yeah. You know? And we always <laughs> we forget that Jesus is there. <laughs> yeah, because there's no way he would have said it in that way, in that tone, in that none of it would have happened. But... I think we just have to remember Jesus. Well, I think just backing up a little bit about um, what you said about, you know, having a, a systematic theology, I think, and, and this is not any sort of like criticism of people who think that way. That's totally cool. But, um, but I think people who have been abused or have been harmed or traumatized are looking for systems. Um, like you said, you, you liked, you liked it because you didn't have to have a surprise and you could explain any surprise that comes your way. That's being hyper vigilant. And it's, it's scarier to jump out of that and jump into a more biblical theology of, of narrative of looking at the whole story of God and the story of man and the story of redemption and having to wrestle through some of those complex narratives, you know, some people say, well, what, you know, what's your advice for the church right now? Like I'm a pastor of a church, what should I do? And um, the first thing I say is, first of all, uh, relinquish your pulpit and let someone who's a survivor tell their story. Cause we never hear that story from the front ever, ever, ever. We, we hear never, drug addict stories all the have. time, but we never, no. I, I've maybe once or twice, but it's really rare. And the second thing I say to them is open up your Bible and preach it. And what I mean by that is look at some of these awful rape narratives and instead of skipping over them or not, you know, handling them, handle them. Yeah. 
with all the mess and all the animosity and all the questions that come, your people are asking those questions. And if you avoid them, you are feeding into their insecurity about their relationship with God because they feel like they're the only ones asking these critical questions. And so we need survivor stories from the front and we need biblical stories from the front that talk about um, this, you know, power differential of David raping Bathsheba. And we need to talk about that. We need to look at the, we need to go back to the Hebrew. We need to look at the consequences. I, I found it fascinating in my study of it that every time rape occurred in the Old Testament, war followed. And this is, rape is a form of violence. And you think about how much God hates violence. Why did he destroy the earth with Noah? It was because the world had become excessively violent. I think today's world, we think sexual sin is like the most evil sin ever. And we poo-poo violence as if violence is no big deal. We stick it on our phones. We watch it on a screen. We have become utterly desensitized to violence. And I think that's a problem. Mm -hmm, definitely. And like you said, if they, well, the only time I ever heard, I heard you one time in my hometown. I heard you talk, tell your story and you were up on the same platform, but I know I've never heard it in a church environment. And I've been in this a long time. And when there was a group, some kind of sexual abuse group, it was always in the basement or some, yeah. some hidden corner. You're always hidden away somewhere. And it's so it's whispers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> whispers is what they do, you know, and, and they don't even like to put it in the bulletin. You know, it's just kind of word of mouth. You know, everyone's ashamed. ashamed I hear there's there. a group meeting. <laughs> yeah. Such shame attached. And it's, it's got to come out into the light. I know there's a girl on Twitter that right on her, I mean, it just says, I'm a gang rape survivor. It's just mm -hmm. boom right there. And somebody asked her, why do you have that on you? She goes, because I'm not ashamed. Yeah. Oh, I just bawled my eyes out. It was so good. I thought to be that free, you know, that's the kind of freedom that, that Jesus brings when you're not ashamed, especially with a story like yours, when there's so much redemption and there's restoration already in this life. You know, some people never get to see it here, but you are an example of how God can do it on this side of heaven. And that's why it's so important that you're out there and people are hearing this and it gives them hope, hope to the hopeless your story brings. Well, that's definitely my hope. And I, I don't want to leave the impression that I'm super awesome and I've conquered it all. I am still in process. I'm still healing. Even this morning, I uncovered another little spot of healing that needs to happen. And, you know, when you mentioned gang rape, someone had defined me that way once. Um, they introduced me, I think, on a podcast or a radio show. And I was like, no, that didn't happen to me. And then I thought about it. I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> uh, these two boys kept bringing their friends and there was no way for me to stop it ha from happening. And there were several different teenage boys who are all stronger than me in a way. Yes, I guess you could categorize it that way. But we so often as sexual abuse survivors, we compare our stories to other more salacious stories. And we think, oh, well, mine's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. My creepy uncle just put a hand on my leg. And so it's, I'm not, I, who am I to even be bothered by it? But we forget that Dan Allender talks about in The Wounded Heart that um, the studies show that there's no difference in healing time between creepy uncle hand on the leg versus full penetration. Yeah. And so we have to be careful about 
comparing our stories to somebody else saying, well, I didn't have that happen. So it's no big deal. That is going to shortchange your healing and you need to stop doing that. Um, if you have been violated by someone who overcame a boundary that you had, you have been sexually violated and you get to have that story. And no matter how the world sees it, you get to look at it full in the face and you have to walk through the healing journey. Um, just like anybody else. Don't, if you minimize it and push it down, then it's never going to be out in the light again. And you're going to have a harder time working through that healing. Yes. And I, and I love how you say that that is not your identity though. That, that is not your identity, that you're loved by Christ. That's your identity, that you're his. That has to be your Thank identity. goodness. Not what happened to <laughs> thank, you, but what, yeah, you said, what you've done. Yes. Thank God. Yes. It's so amazing. Thank you so much. Like I said, thank you not just for coming on here, but for being there for real people. I don't even know how you find the time. I don't think you find the time. I know it's <laughs> not convenient. <laughs> I know it's not at all convenient, but you're being Christ to people in the flesh. And it literally, you don't even know until heaven, you're not going to know the impact. Mm -hmm. probably. So thank you. Thank you. The Lord has been really, really good to me this week. I've gotten all these pieces of unsolicited feedback and it's been like one side of me is like that's really sweet and the other side of me of me is like something bad must be starting to happen because i'm getting <laughs> positive feedback but um that's the way we think though yeah, always very, bad. <laughs> i'm always good something bad about yeah, to happen that's my <laughs> yes. cat catastrophic thinking uh in yes. play which is very common with sexual abuse survivors mm -hmm. a couple things i do have for for your listeners um one is if they go to we too dog dot org forward slash 21 days, the number two and the number one days. There's a 21 day email sequence that walks you through some of the best practices I've learned in the healing journey. And then if there's um, a leader in a church that just needs some resources, I've got 30 pages of free resources to equip you to better deal with the situation. And that's we2.org forward slash pastors, P-A-S-T-O-R-S. That's how that is. Thank you. And not to mention the other 39 books yeah, <laughs> that you have there. So I had one beside my nightstand and I didn't even know. And I looked one day and it was you. And I thought, I can't believe I have a book of yours. It was something about raising courageous kids. And yeah, I had no yeah. idea you read <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I even had a book that I didn't know I had a book of yours. That's funny. I have plenty of them, but that one I didn't really realize. It was hilarious. But would you pray, Mary? I know your podcast, their praying podcast is beautiful. And you send emails of prayer and Please, will you just pray to end this today? Mm -hmm. Jesus, thank you for this time that we have together. And Lord, I pray for the one who's maybe been triggered by this conversation, and I pray you would be tender. And uh, Lord, I know many of us have questions about your goodness and why did that happen to me? And this is so hard and it's causing me such pain. But Lord, I pray that you would meet us in those tender, difficult places. And um, Lord, I know there are some listening today that are really mad at the church, and I, I can understand that. And I'm, I just feel like I need to repent on behalf of all leaders who have demonstrated that kind of spiritual pride that they're, they've been more interested in reputation management than doing the right thing. And so, Lord, would you forgive the church for acting that way? It's, it doesn't represent your heart. And Father, I do pray for um, light. Um, I know some of us are walking in darkness and it feels like we're in a dark room and there's not even a little candle of light in there. I pray the little flicker would come on today. 
and they would begin to see that there is hope for a future. And I know in my own life that you've brought me through so much healing and the the great joy that comes in being able to bear other people's stories is something I cannot describe. It's so beautiful and wonderful. And so I pray that for my friend today that they would they would continue to walk the journey for their sake and also for the sake of others um, who need them to be their, their burden bearer. So Lord, bring us to a new place and thank you for your kindness toward us. I, I praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Every scar one day will heal. Every tear one